Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at GodSolutionShow.com. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. I'm Grant Percet. We're going to continue today with the second part of our interview with Dr. Mike Lacona, who recently authored Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? What We Can Learn from Ancient Biography. You can get last week's interview at godsolutionshow.com under the past shows tab. And definitely this interview will be posted there soon, too, as well. So thanks again for tuning back in for the second part of the interview. We were talking last week with Dr. Lacona about some of the differences in the Gospels and some possible explanations for them. So here we pick up talking about some of those issues again today. And you mentioned in your book that Q was probably a written source, not an oral one. And that uh, it could have just been the notes of Jesus' teachings that the disciples carried with them. Do you think this may be what Papias referred to concerning Matthew's Hebrew or Aramaic text? It could be. Um, and when I say they, they could have been the teachings of Jesus and the notes reported by one or more of the disciples, I mean, that's just a, a guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that that's the case. I'm just saying that's a possibility. Um, it, Q could have been one of those Gospels that... That or, or accounts of Jesus that were written um, prior to him. Like in the first three verses of Luke's Gospel, he says many other accounts had been written, but he was going to seek to put down in an orderly manner. Does that mean Mark and Matthew? Um, does the, could the word many mean two? Um, were there other accounts? Was there a Q source at that point, a written source to, to which he was referring? We just don't know. Um, could it have been... What Papias was saying, like you suggest, maybe with that Aramaic or Hebrew original, it's possible. Um, Dan Wallace thinks that maybe it, uh, you know, you've got five discourses of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, like the Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse at the end of Jesus' ministry. Um, could it be that Matt, uh, Papias is referring to a few of those discourses that were originally written in Hebrew? Because I think it's talking about the Lagia, uh, the, the saints, or teachings of Jesus. So it, it could be some of those that to which Papias was referring, and that someone later on, an editor, perhaps under Matthew's direction, um, took those, translated a few of those into Greek, and then incorporated Mark as a primary source and some other um, sources as well. And that's the Gospel of Matthew that we have today. But it's just hard to tell. I think it's safe to say that Q wasn't something different. You know, it wasn't something uh, radically different from anything that we have in the Gospels today. No, I, I yeah, I, I would agree with you there. And some, of course, want to say <laughs> that there's a Q community that was different. They didn't even believe in the resurrection of Jesus because Q doesn't mention the resurrection of Jesus. <clears throat> and I just think that's that's insanity. If if that was the case, why would Matthew and Luke, who believe in the resurrection, use Q so extensively? You know, uh, there's like two uh, over 220 verses that of this alleged Q source that both Matthew and Luke use. So why would they use it if they were presenting heresy? Um, 
And besides, just because it doesn't mention the resurrection, uh, if Q didn't mention the resurrection, doesn't mean Q wasn't aware of it. Again, if they, what if they were the teachings of Jesus, and Q is exclusively the teachings of Jesus? <clears throat> so if, yeah, if that's that. just the teachings of Jesus, you don't need the resurrection there. It wouldn't be part of it if it were the notes of one of the disciples. We wouldn't expect to, for it to include the resurrection, because it's just the teachings of Jesus. And then finally, I would say that um, our means of identifying Q are very limited. Yeah. Um, it, Q, we identified a Q source of common material between Matthew and Luke, but what is absent from Mark. So what if Q in, included a resurrection narrative, and Matthew has it, but Luke decided to use a different source in that case? Well, then in that case, Q included the resurrection, and we'd never know it, again, because our means of identifying Q are so limited. And Q doesn't mention Jesus' crucifixion either. Does that mean there was a Q community that didn't know anything about the crucifixion? Well, nobody would claim that. So um, I mean, the arguments just are, are weak to say that there is this different Christian community that did not believe in the resurrection. No, the, the similarities, I think, is a, is a great point that you bring out. And just to let you know, I'm going to be stealing that and sharing that with uh, my atheist friends. Um, but also, so I, I realize you say this isn't an apologetics book, but the apologetics guy in me wants to still kind of use this for some apologetic value. And let me ask you this. Um, since the New Testament Gospels seem to be matching Greco-Roman biographical styles, does that give it more credibility, the idea that it, it was written at a certain time period, the idea that it matches that style and wasn't mythology written later on? Am I on to something there or no? I think it could be used, but to minimal effect. So, okay. for example, the fact that it's Greco-Roman biography or that it shares much in common with that genre tells us that the Gospel authors are probably interested in reporting history. Okay. That doesn't. Now, I would say this: that that doesn't mean that they are committed to writing accurate history necessarily. And I say that because Mount Philostratus uh, wrote uh, *Life of Apollonius of Tiana* in the early part of the. Uh, uh, that would have been the early part of the third century, um, and a lot of it is fictitious. Most most scholars would say a lot of it is fictitious. So, you know, there was an agenda behind it. There was an agenda behind most ancient biographies. Um, but in this case, it could be that uh, the Christianity was really blossoming during this time, and Philostratus was writing this in order that Apollonius could be a competitor of Jesus. Um, that, that's a possibility there. You also have Aristobulus, who Plutarch says... Um, wrote, uh, Lucian of Samosata, I'm sorry, he wrote, said that Aristobulus had written a biography, A Life of Alexander the Great, and presented it to Alexander while on a voyage. And Alexander started reading it, and then he took it and he threw it overboard, because he said, um, you know, there's a story in it where Alexander took on an elephant single-handedly and killed it. And he said, he threw the, the book overboard, and he said, Aristobulus, out, I'll throw you over as well and do likewise with you because you make up these stories and you know people reading it will know that they're false and then they'll throw away and discount every 
thing else that I had that I actually did do. Um, so there were certain ancient biographers who just were not committed to writing accurate history. So the, the fact that the Gospels belong to that genre does not guarantee their historical accuracy. What this book does, though, um, if you want to use it for apologetic purposes, it does nothing to build the historical reliability of the Gospels. A positive case would have to be made for that, and that's something I am working on now. That's my next project, and I'm well into it. Um, but what this book would do is it would take the major objection against the historical reliability of the Gospels, that on differences, on contradictions, and I think it crushes that. I think it would show that if you were going to argue that the Gospels are not historically reliable accounts of Jesus, you're going to have to find a different argument, because contradictions, differences will not work. If you're a listener right now and you want more on the historical reliability of the New Testament and the Gospels, we'll be interviewing Dr. Craig Blomberg in the next couple weeks here, talking about his new book on that topic as well. And when Lacona, when you finish that, that next book, we'll uh, be sure to get you back again, too. Uh, one question that I, that I want to ask, and we've talked off the air a little bit about this, you've had pushback from some prominent apologists and Christian thinkers, and some people, I think, think that you are attacking uh, the inerrancy of Scripture, the inspiration, the divine inspiration of Scripture, that you're just kind of relativizing the New Testament and the Gospel accounts. That might be an accusation, uh, and I don't think they're getting what you're saying. Uh, when What I'm getting, tell me if I'm wrong, is if we really want to understand some of these differences, instead of just trying to harmonize them away, if we really want to understand what's going on, we need to understand the genre that they were written in. And understanding that genre paints a big picture. It doesn't subtract from the inspiration of Scripture or anything like that. It just helps us understand it. And if I'm not mistaken, that's that's hermeneutics at its core is what was intended in in the beginning by the author, and how do we read it with that in mind? Am I right? Is is that a, a valid answer to that pushback, or what's going on with that that pushback, and how would you respond? Yeah, I, I think you've nailed it there. Um, I think you're absolutely correct. Um, the pushback that I've received, and it's not been much at this point, because mm -hmm. the book just came out, so yeah. they're only pushing back based on some videos or interviews that I've done with others on this. Um, so, you know, they're only aware of some of the details, some of the examples that I provided, not the full story like you have in the book, where there's just tons of examples. Um, so I, I think it, it's mainly the, the, the theologian type who are in objection, um, who have some reservations, uh, whereas, you know, I'm, I'm a student of the New Testament. My field is New Testament studies. Now, that is not to say that theologians do not study the New Testament. I, I don't want to give that impression. Of course they do. But it's, it's a matter of where the focus is. And um, so I'm looking at the New Testament, not primarily theologically, but historically, to understand the historical background and, uh, and try to understand it from that. Theologians do that as well, but that's not typically their their emphasis. So I kind of think of it this way. A, a nephrologist has done, done some very focused work on the kidneys and produces some um, results from that research. And you have general practitioners then 
who then object because it doesn't fall within their concept of the kidney. So um, I, that's another difference you could say would be like um, the approach. So a lot of theologians are going to take a top-down approach. They're going to say, okay, we know the Scripture is inspired. We know that it's inerrant. Well, how do they know that? Because their theology tells them that. They already have this this view of Scripture. It's kind of like it's been freeze-dried, pre-packaged, and put on the shelves because it's been denominationally approved, and we're supposed to take that and eat it. Uh, we don't need to question. Uh, but that's the top-down approach. This is what, how we think divinely inspired Scripture looks like. Whereas I work from the bottom up um, as, uh, as a historian. It's like F.F. F. Bruce said, do not read your theology into the text. Read the text and develop your theology from it. So rather than saying, okay, if a text is forming a, a syllogism, let's say, okay, if a text is divinely inspired, this is what it should look like. Um, I'm going to say, what does the text look like? And if it's divinely inspired... Well, that's what divinely inspired text looks like. Um, if, like it was said at a recent uh, annual meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society, there was a three-hour and ten-minute session devoted to my book, and Daryl Bach, Craig Blomberg, Mark Strauss read papers on it, and then we had a panel discussion and open Q&A from the audience. So what ends up happening is uh, Daryl Bach said something, and he's, I think he's correct. He said... What does inspired scripture look like? How, or what was the process of inspiration? We don't know. Nobody knows what the process of inspiration looked like. And Mark Strauss said, inerrancy? He said it may be the wrong term for what we're looking at. He's not the first to say that, of course. You had John Walton and Brett Sandy say the same thing in their book, The Lost World of Scripture. Now, of course, all of these have a very high view of scripture. They they regarded as divinely inspired, authoritative, um, but as inerrant, the proper term for it um, is what they were, were saying. And then I said to the audience, yeah, you know, what, is it, what does divinely inspired scripture look like? We, what did the process look like, as Daryl asked? We really don't know. Now, kind of, we, I, I think even though many evangelicals eschew um, I. Uh, dictation theory mm -hmm. uh, mode that says God dictated word for word. We wouldn't say that. And, and really in practice, they kind of think that it, that's what it was. And they just say it's a mystery. But it was kind of a dictation thing, word for word. Um, and I think that that is just not the way it happened. There was human element in it, and we have to look at that and say, well, what does it look like? Does that allow for some errors in the peripheral details? We don't know. So I think when the Scripture is not uh, clear on something, we should not speak with a lot of boldness and dogmatically on those things. So um, I think, you know, the short answer is those who are critics take a top-down approach. They assume what divinely inspired Scriptures look like, and if what I'm presenting does not fit in with that prepackaged view, they're going to have problems with it. Uh, for me, I go from bottom up and say, let's look at the Scriptures, because whatever view we have of Scriptures has to be in concert with the Scriptures themselves and what we're reading in Scriptures. And if it's not in concert with it, 
then we may have a we may think we have a high view of scripture when in reality all we really have is a high view of our view of scripture mm-hmm. and that is not um that's just misguided piety is all that is if you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution, you can go to godsolutionshow.com to find out more about the show. I want to read something from your conclusion. You said, Our findings also have practical implications for a number of readers. Since the early days of the Christian church, many, though by no means all, devout believers have been troubled by the differences. And you go on to talk about how we force things, and you come up with this phrase that absolutely cracks me up. It's called hermeneutical waterboarding. Did you make, <laughs> did you make that up, first of all? Is this the... Well, I, I have to say it was influenced by a <laughs> statement that Dale Allison made in his book, Resurrecting Jesus, where he says, you know, that you um, torture the text uh. until they tell you what you want to hear, something along those lines. So, yeah, I just took it and said, you know, they subject the text to hermeneutical waterboarding until the exegete gets out of them what he wants to hear. No, I, I love it, but it, it seems like, is that what you're trying to say, is we don't have to feel locked in with details that we don't have to defend? That's that's correct, yes. And I think the strained harmonization um, does more harm than good, because, uh, well, just to give you an example, the uh, parallel, years ago I was talking to... Um, a Mormon bishop, a guy who had been a Mormon bishop. It'd be kind of like the equivalent of a pastor of a church. Um, and I was challenged him and said, you know, what about all these, you know, in the Book of Mormon it says that at the Hill Cumorah, around the year 421, 420, something like that, um, hundreds of thousands were killed on that hill, and they weren't buried. So, if you know, the Mormon Church thinks that that hill is in Palmyra, New York, just outside of Rochester. And that was, you know, only 1,600 years ago. So if that's the case, why don't we find any kind of bones or weapons on that hill? Nothing has ever been found. And the bishop's wife said, well, maybe God took them to heaven. So you, you see what that sounds like? Uh, in order to get an answer, you have to come up with something, an ad hoc explanation like that. Well, strained harmonizations have the same kind of appearance as that uh, as the bishop's wife did with the bones. It's an ad hoc explanation meant solely to defend a tertiary doctrine, the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. So, you know, Christianity is true because Jesus rose from the dead. If Christ, if Jesus rose, then it's game set match for the Christian view. Uh, and once I realized that Jesus truly rose from the dead, then all these other debates became of secondary and tertiary importance. Um, so I, I think what ends up happening is a lot of Christians will spend all this time on trying to justify the inerrancy of the Bible and, and, and do things to try to um, explain very difficult differences. And it's like you said, I, I just don't think that's necessary. Because, again, once you know that Jesus rose from the dead, everything else becomes secondary. You could have all sorts of problems in, in the Bible. Like you could look at the, you know, the, what looks to be genocide in the Old Testament at times. And you say, well, what's going on here? You know, when God tells them to kill the women and children and all the animals, 
Well, I think Paul Copan and Matthew Flanagan have, you know, made some really interesting and, and, and a lot of them true uh, arguments to answer those in their book. But I, I could respond at the, and say, at the very minimal, you could say that those were just stories meant to justify the acts of a brutal Israelite king. In that case, even if that were the case, it wouldn't discredit Christianity. It would just discredit biblical inerrancy. And we'd have to just look at the Old Testament and say, well, some of the stories in their false. Or, you know, they did like what Saddam Hussein when he was fighting against the, the, the U.S. and said, this is going to be the mother of all wars, um, that Allah was on their side. You know, that could have been the same with the Old Testament. What I'm saying is, I'm not saying that's the case. I'm saying even if that were the case, Christianity is still true if Jesus rose from the dead. So I think we put far too much emphasis on the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. And even, like I said, William Lane Craig calls it a tertiary doctrine, and I think he's correct. I like, <clears throat> excuse me, I like the way uh, Dr. Blomberg puts it, puts it. We aren't Christians because of inerrancy. We believe inerrancy because we are Christians. I think we come to Christ because he conquered death, like you said, and no one else ever has. And as a Christian, now we can come to the text and we can have these tertiary conversations and look at things. But maybe that's not the best first approach for, for bringing somebody to faith in Christ. Well, yeah, I agree with that. And there are, are many Christians who will not say that the Bible is inerrant. Um, they just don't like the term. So, for example, N.T. Wright, Richard Baucom, Craig Evans, who's, uh, who teaches at uh, Houston Baptist University, where I'm at. Um, you know, there are a number, number, number of these huge scholars who do not, they're, you know, they're, they're conservative. They have a very, very high view of Scripture, yet they don't define it in terms of inerrancy. So that's more an, in, an in-house debate, though, is kind of what, what we're getting at. The main point here is, is Jesus beat death, and like you said, game, set, match. It's over. That's right. If he rose from the dead, Christianity is true, even if it were to be the case that something in the Bible is not. And no, I totally agree. I don't know if you heard, uh, there was a sermon that I think Andy Stanley gave a little while ago that had some, a little bit of a firestorm. But my take was he was basically saying our faith doesn't stop at the Bible. There were Christians before the Bible as we know it in its form today. The foundation of our faith is the resurrection. And I, I think you would agree with that. And that seems to be the main point of our faith. Yes, I would certainly agree with that. Um, I think Stanley was right on with that. And that um, his his critics uh, were just flat wrong. I think they had that top down approach. Um, they're more or less presuppositionalists, which if, if they want to hold that view, that's fine. But um, they just need to understand Andy is not uh, doing anything to undermine the Bible here. He's just uh, removing stumbling blocks, a stumbling block from a lot of uh, people out there. You can still have a high view of Scripture. Um, you know, and none of these, I mean, the earliest Christians, they presented the resurrection as the truth of Christianity. Um, they were doing that before any of the New Testament was even written, right? So um, um, if there were problems in the New Testament, it wouldn't undermine the, the truth of the gospel message as long as Jesus rose from the dead. Um, 
So, and I would add that they were going around saying Christianity is true because of the resurrection. They didn't make any statement. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, you will be saved. Inerrancy is not a gospel essential. It is a tertiary doctrine. Um, and I think we just need to realize that and put it where it rightly belongs. But some people like to major on the minors and make it a fundamental doctrine, and it is not. And having it as a fundamental doctrine has led to the demise of the faith of many when they start to see things, like some, you, know, you have a Bart Ehrman that comes around, and he's got this very rigid view of inerrancy, and then he sees what appears to be an error in the Gospel of Mark, and he says, well, if, not, if, the, if the Bible is not inerrant, uh, I can't trust it at all. And, um, and it, that starts to lead to the demise of his faith. So I, I think that there's some, some real problems with placing inerrancy first and foremost as a fundamental doctrine. It was never meant to be that way. Ehrman falls prey to the same strained harmonization that you talked about. So this goes both ways. You know, people on the other side can uh, do the same thing. For example, with hallucination theory, it's strained harmonization of the, of the facts. So... Well, Dr. Lacona, we've got to wrap up, and I just wanted to let you uh, kind of summarize it. I, I imagine that uh, whether people completely agree with you or not, there, there could be a little confusion right now. Like, what's he saying? Is he trying to say that the Bible is not reliable, et cetera? How would you address those concerns? You know, if somebody's listening right now and maybe they're not quite understanding you in this, what would be your summary statement to somebody like that? Well, I, I would encourage them to go to my website, risenjesus.com, click on resources in the menu, and then go down, I don't know, four or five um, objects, and you'll see a written debate that Bart, Bart Ehrman and I had this past spring, February through May, on the question, are the Gospels historically reliable accounts of Jesus? And there I present a case for the historical reliability of the Gospels. So you can see it in, in that way. Um, I do believe that the Gospels are God's inerrant word. I would define inerrancy as they are true in everything that they affirm or teach. I don't have to go beyond that. Um, so I, I look at that. I'm open to uh, errors in the peripherals. Um, if they were there, it wouldn't bother me at all, because I understand that... The Bible tells us nowhere how the process of inspiration occurred, and it could be the case. Uh, I'm not saying this is the case, but it could be the case that God just inspired the writers with the concepts, brought back to their memory thing, uh, the recollection, things that Jesus said and did, and made sure that everything that we needed to know about it was preserved accurately. Dr. Lacona, thank you so much for uh, being on the show again and talking about your new book, and uh, we look forward to that next book on the historical reliability of the Gospels. Thank you very much for your work. Totally appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you guys. Keep up the good work, Nate and Grant. Appreciate you all. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Lacona. God bless you guys. You too. Bye-bye. Well, thanks so much for listening again today. You can get this and last week's interview at godsolutionshow.com under the Past Shows tab. If you've never begun a relationship with Jesus Christ through faith, I encourage you to do that today. You could verbalize your faith in Jesus, saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again to give me new life.
Please come into my life as Savior and Lord. If you are following Jesus, I encourage you to share your faith with your friends, to let them know some of the evidence for the faith that you have. You can go to GodSolutionShow.com to get all of our past shows and share that with your friends. It's a great resource to share some of the evidence for your faith with your friends. While you're there, consider making a tax-deductible donation to keep the show on the air and to expand the ministry of the God Solution Show. You could also leave us comments and maybe ideas for future show, shows. You name it. You could, you could do a whole lot at GodSolutionShow.com. Well, it's the Christmas season. As we continue interviewing some of the world's leading apologists, I encourage you to continue rejoicing in the hope that we have in Jesus this Christmas season and sharing that hope with those that you know and love. Please let them know the evidence for the hope that you have. Well, like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. I believe that with all my heart, and I hope that you do too. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to The God Solution. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at GodSolutionShow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.